So tonight we're talking about let it go. I'm going to start off with a story just to kind of get our wheels turning and the juices flowing. Simon Wiesenthal nestled in the pages of his autobiography. He writes a little story, a story that he says became the MO. It became part of his existence. I'm surprised actually the story is not more well known since Simon Wiesenthal was the person who he was. He says it's 1945, right after the war. I'm in a displaced persons camp. A man comes running over to me and he says, can I borrow what Simon Wiesenthal calls the equivalent of $10? I have a package coming in, I promise you, a week from now, I'm going to have your money back. A week goes by and there's no sign of this guy. Two weeks that turn into three weeks, that turn into five weeks, that turn into a month, two months, three months, five months, ten months, almost a year. One day, the guy comes running towards Simon. I have your money. I got a visa to go to Canada. Here's your $10 back. Simon looks at him with the face that only he can give. And he says to him, keep it. I'm not going to let $10 change my opinion of you. And he continues to write that grudge became the bane of his existence. The bane of his existence. What do you think of that story? I think it also says a lot about grudges, right? I don't know. I'm not sure I agree with you that it says that the grudge itself is not the important part for me. Right. You're not, you're not sure that the grudge is the important part. No. Or the person, or the character. Right. The person, their character. Yeah. What do you think? What's, the, what's your reaction to that story? Also, you know, I, did he use the word the bane of my existence? I believe he did use that word. To me, it's the reverse. Like, he took what happened to him and it motivated him to bring it But, but he, it's true, it's true that you're saying that he took that and he, it was the exact opposite. But it did, he was motivated by a... I know maybe it's the wrong word to use, but by a collective grudge. He was motivated. I mean, it happened to be that majority of the world also had a grudge on the Nazis, and rightfully so. But he was the one who actually spent his life hunting them and brought many of them to justice. So it was, to a certain extent, a, a, a collective grudge. I know maybe it's hard for us to see it that way because it's so much part of our DNA as Jews living in the 21st century to think about the fact that a Nazi hunter, wow, I mean, Simon Wiesenthal, he is the closest thing to God that we know of. But the fact of the matter is, is that he took something that was collectively very negative and then turned it into something positive because everybody else agreed with that grudge. 
if you want to call it a grudge. That's why I think the story is something to really think about. Any other reaction to it? I don't get his point on this one. Okay. You're in a displaced person's camp. The guy needed 10 bucks. I'm sure 10 bucks wasn't easy to get. You know, so it took him six months longer than expected to get back into the guy. You know, to me, the person has a certain character that he had a debt, and you made sure that he wanted to clear all his debts before he left the country. Right, he, he was actually making good. I mean, imagine if he left to Canada and he didn't pay up his debt. That would be a much more powerful or much more negative story yeah. than, than that. So to me, I think, uh, I appreciate everything that Simon Wiesenthal did, but I'm assuming this poor man who was also in a displaced person's camp probably lived through quite a lot and, yeah, was an honest man who needed money and get it back. Right. I completely agree with you. I mean, that is my take. What, what you just said is exactly my take. I believe that we deserve to give everyone the benefit of the doubt and the chance. And the man was finally, a year later, making good on his debt. At least he made good on his debt before he left yeah. to go to Canada. I, I completely agree with you. But Simon Wiesenthal didn't. And I, and I think, yes. These were his exact words. This is the way he writes it himself. He says, keep it. I'm not going to let $10 change my opinion of you. So you decide what that means. He wasn't allowing this guy to be forgiven for taking so long. But maybe he never believed he did something wrong by not bringing back the $10. Well, Simon Wiesenthal definitely believed he did something wrong. I would think so, right? I mean, is anyone debating that, that, that from his he own words? Pay back and get the package. He was very detailed in what Ex- he was doing. Exactly. The guy said, I'm going to pay you back in a week. So obviously, Sam Wiesenthal was a real yekke. He was a real stickler for time. And a week to him meant a week, not a year. And we know actually that about him. He was very much a stickler for time. I think is a very good point is that communication is really an important part of narrative in general. If something happens to us, if you communicate, say, look, I know I promised you. It's a week has gone by. I know I promised you. Can you give me a little more time? I'm sorry I don't have the money. That would have been right. But he didn't do that. And so obviously Simon had spent the past 11 and a half months building up a really huge grudge against this guy. There's no question about that. Now, what is very powerful, at least what I take out of this story, is 
What about our own grudges? And how long we let them build up? And how we also create narratives about our own grudges? Narratives that may be true and narratives that may not be true. But they're stories that we tell ourselves. Often there are similar stories. I mean, this is a really exasperated story. But our own grudges may have similar lines of someone not making do on something good or someone doing something to us that went against what we expected that they would be doing, etc., etc. So yeah, maybe we can agree or not agree with, with Simon, but what about our own grudges? And what I want you to do tonight is if you are someone who has a grudge against anyone, I hope everyone here does not have any grudges, and then we're just talking to the people of the world that don't hold grudges. That's fine. You know, we're actually a bunch of people who are going to teach the world about not holding grudges, and uh, the rest is history. But if you are someone who holds a grudge, how valuable is that grudge to you? Is it Simon Wiesenthal valuable? That's my first question tonight. As a child, I used to read Dear Abby. I loved reading Dear Abby. I actually write a column now called Dear Rabbi. (laughs) Because I love Dear Abby so much. And one day someone writes to Dear Abby about a grudge that they were holding against their sister, I believe. And she starts off her answer by saying, a grudge is allowing someone you don't like to live rent-free in your head. That's me. Allowing someone that you hate to live rent-free in your head. And then she continues. She says, it's like lighting yourself on fire and expecting the person next to you to die of smoke inhalation. How much real estate, mental, emotional, physical real estate, do we want to give to the, per- to the people who we are holding that grudge against? How much time and effort do we want to give to them? Pain is painful. Stub your toe, it hurts. But holding a grudge is stubbing your toe and it hurting for a year, or two years, or 10 years, or 20 years. Why do we want to allow the stubbed toe to hurt for 20 years? We continue to hurt over and over and over again, reliving the story, reliving our own narrative, our own version of that story. Over and over and over again. In 1929, the head of Germany's General Electric was a man by the name of Walter Rathenau. In the time, it was a big deal. Well, Germany, a lot of the German Jews were very affluent. And he became a prominent member of Germany, the head of the General Electric of Germany. 
There were people, this is before Hitler, a lot of people who didn't like the Jewish power, and there was a few politicians that had decided to assassinate this Walter Rappenau. And they hired three assassins to assassinate this young Jewish man. And they killed him. The police killed two of the assassins on the spot, and one escaped. He was later caught. He was 21 years old. His name was Ernst Tekau. He's sitting in prison, waiting his trial. When he gets a letter from Walter Rathenau's mother, he just killed her only son. And she sent him a letter. He hadn't even gone to trial yet. What do you think she wrote to him? Now, if you were Walter Rathenau's mother, what would you write to this? a lone assassin of your son, your only son. What would you say? May you rot in hell. May you rot in hell. And I'm sure there could be other, lots of other four-letter words that could be used to tell this man. There's no forgiveness for you. Fool. Crazy person. What have you done? She sends him a letter. I'll tell you what she wrote in the letter. She starts the letter by saying, I will forgive you on two conditions. Number one, that you admit to your wrongdoing in the court below. And number two, that you admit to your wrongdoing in the court above. Now let's just say, she put her whole life on the line. She put everything she had left on the line. She just lost her only child. She's grieving him. And she sends a letter to the only living assassin of her child saying that she's going to forgive him? What is she thinking? It could be, I'm just, this is my own interpretation of the story, but it could be the man would have never responded. It could have be that he would have gotten that letter, that she put her entire life on the line, her soul. She bared her soul to this 21-year-old child, and he would have crumpled it up and thrown it in the garbage. It could have happened, but that's not what happened. Ernst Heckel admitted to his wrongdoing and spent 15 years in prison in Germany. He got out in 1944. He joined the Foreign Legion, smuggled his way into Marseille, started making fake passports for the Jews, and saved 929 Jews from the clutches of Hitler. And in 1945, he sent a letter to Walter Rathenau's mother, in which he writes that the letter that you sent me 16 years ago is my most valued possession. I hold it in my embrace every single day of my life. I will never forgive myself for what I did that day. 
But I hope, he writes, right after the war, that the 929 Jews that I saved, some way, will avenge the blood that I spilled of your son. By her forgiving him, she didn't only save her life. She saved the lives of 929, and who knows today? Thousands and thousands and thousands. that we have in our hands to create or destroy our own interpretations, our own narratives, our own ideas, things that we harbor and and think about and, and rethink about over and over and over again. Ideas that we spend a lifetime concerned with, worried about, wondering about. There are people who hold grudges for years and years and years. It's funny because nobody ever called me up one at night and said, stop thinking about me. Nobody's ever said, stop thinking about me. Yet often we spend so much time thinking about others. And what's interesting is, and as a rabbi, I get this unique perspective on people's narratives. Because you can see that over time, the narratives create themselves. It's actually not even the same thing that happens. It's not even the same story. It's like some obscured version that someone's created in their head of a story that may or may not have existed. I can tell you I've lived vicariously through a lot of stories. (laughs) I've heard them. And some of them are important. And it's true, we we get offended. And, and, And I'm not saying don't get offended. What I'm saying is, how valuable is it? And I think that if we take the narrative or the approach of Walter Rathenau's mother, what do we do? We don't only relieve ourselves of the pressure. We don't only change ourselves. We end up saving a generation. Because, and I truly believe this, and I hope you'll share this thought with me. I truly believe that if you put it out there, it must come back. If you hold it on to yourself, if it takes over your head like Dirabi says, takes up space rent-free in your head, then it's yours. And you're holding on to it. And it's your thoughts, and it's your world, and it's your subconscious. But if you put it out there, like she did, something is going to come back to you in return. And that is 
the dualities. Are we the Simon Wiesenthal grudge holders, or are we the Walter Rathenau's mother grudge givers? Do we give back the grudge to the person who we're planning on holding it from and see what they're going to do with it? Now the onus is on you. And with this, I want to go into the next part of my story. For those of you who have followed my classes, you know that I love biblical stereotypes. I love taking narratives and ideas from the characters of the Torah because I find that the Torah has such amazing narratives and stories that we really can share and we really can take and and feel and, and take home with us. So, I mean, there's a lot of stories about people holding grudges. Jacob and Esau, I mean, that was a grudge right there. You know what the name Yaakov is? Yaakov is heel. You know why they called him heel? Because he was holding on to his brother's heel. When they came out of the womb, they were twins. They were fighting in the womb. The story goes that when the mom would go next to one place, she would start kicking. They were fighting in the womb. Before they were born, they were fighting. And their entire life, they were fighting. But I would say the greatest fight of the Torah is the story of Joseph. Number 11. Ten older brothers. Anyone, a, a, a youngish child, maybe you could relate to this. One day he comes home and he says, Oh, brothers, brothers, I have a dream. A dream rooted deep in the Canaanite dream. No. Scratch that. It's Andrew Lloyd Webber, right? <laughs> Didn't he make up that story? <laughs> and the brothers are like, you're taking over the throne, uh-huh, yeah, you're going to be the one that's going to rule, yeah, right, come on. And of course, they do what every good older brother would do. They throw him in the pit, and then sell him as a slave. Now, we all know that part of the story, and we know, fast forward, he becomes viceroy of Egypt, I'm going to skip the middle part. But what is not well known is the end of the story. The story that is nestled in the last paragraph of the book of Genesis, of the book of Bereshit. The next paragraph after the story is, and Joseph lived, and the brothers lived, and then is the story of the Jews going down to Egypt and the story of Passover. That's it. The last little piece, the most, what I think is the most powerful moment in the entire Torah. Jacob dies. Yaakov dies. And Joseph promised him that he was going to bury him with his parents in Hebron, in the tomb of the patriarchs, in Ma'arat HaMachpelah. And I can only imagine this scene. This is my own interpretation of the scene. But I can imagine the brothers so honorably taking their father from Egypt on their shoulders, 12 brothers, marching along in this beautiful formation, paying the respect to their parent as every child should pay to their parents. They bury him. So that was the first burial in Israel. Yes. No, there, there were other burials. In no, no, from oh, from Israel. outside. Yes, there was the first overseas burial in Egypt and Israel, and El Al was not included. <laughs> and so they get to Hebron, they do the burial, and now they're on their way walking back. 
and the Torah continues telling the story. The brothers start talking amongst themselves. Joseph, Joseph, come on, remember? Remember Joseph? We gave him up. We gave him up for death. We sold him as a slave. He has been harboring resentment for all these years. Of course, while father was alive, he was never going to do anything to us. Of course, while father was alive, he wasn't going to do anything to us. But now, father's gone. He's going to kill us all. And he's viceroy of Egypt. He is going to kill us all. With the snap of a finger, he can kill us all. So they send messengers to him. Please, don't kill us. We will be your slaves. Then, when Joseph's not sure exactly what's going on, they themselves go, and it says they bow and prostrate themselves at his feet. They're on the way back to Egypt, and they're bowing and prostrating themselves at his feet, saying, please don't kill us. And he's looking at them dumbfounded. Now, this is an entire narrative that was made up by the 11 brothers. The same brothers that sold him just made up a narrative that he's been holding a grudge for how many years? This would be now almost 40 years he's holding a grudge. This is what they assume. It was 18 years or so, and then 20 years in Egypt, 38 years. They're holding a grudge for 38 years. What does he say to them? Anyone know these words? What happens next? What he says to them is what I believe are the most powerful words in the entire Torah. He says, Am I instead of God? You intended to hurt me, but God had a different plan. The end. Am I instead of God? You intended to hurt me, but God had a different plan. What's beautiful about it, I think, is that he didn't say you didn't do anything. One of the things I hate about the Yiddish language, I love the Yiddish language. I grew up with it. It's a beautiful language. But there's one part of the Yiddish language that I hate. When you say, thank you, I die in Yiddish, what's the response? Does anyone know? Nishta came from us. Which means nothing to thank. What, what, what do you mean nothing? I just said thank you and you just destroyed my thank you? I said thank you and you said nothing to thank. Yes, there is. If there was nothing to thank, I wouldn't be saying thank you. But the way, you know, they, they give the hand. Eh, you know, don't worry about it. That's false humility. That's not a nishta came for us, nothing to thank. Of course there's something to thank. Say so you're welcome. Why are we destroying the thank you? Joseph wasn't saying you did nothing. He didn't say there's nothing happened. Eh, you know, eh, it's all in the past. No big deal. Don't worry about it. Let's, he didn't say that. He said, you made a big mistake. You intended harm to me. But God had a different plan. What he's saying to them is, I forgave you 38 years ago. So you know who you have to ask forgiveness for now? You know who you're going to have to ask forgiveness from? <laughs> the big guy upstairs. You got nothing to do with me. Hands off for me. You want to ask forgiveness? 
talk to God. By us doing that, by mimicking Joseph, by doing that with our grudges, I think that we put the onus where it belongs on the person who did whatever they did to us. What Joseph did, I think, is probably the healthiest way of dealing with a grudge or a resentment. Forgive them. Forgive them. Now it's your business. Now you gotta go figure out, maybe you're gonna have to go Yom Kippur to the synagogue and figure out how to make amends for what you did to me because it has nothing to do with me anymore. It's completely about you and God now. You don't believe in God? Well, you have to figure out someone that you're gonna have to ask forgiveness for because it's not me. So we now have three narratives that we're dealing with. We're dealing with narrative one, the narrative of Simon Wiesenthal. We're dealing with narrative two, the narrative of Rathenau's mother. And narrative three, the the narrative of Joseph. And I think these are three very real ways that people do and can deal with grudges and resentment. What do you think? I'm getting the head nods, but no response. Yeah. The, a grudge is a return, so it's a remembering. Mm-hmm. And that can be painful. Mm-hmm. But I guess the difficulty I'm having is that sometimes that remembering allows you to break out of those cycles as well. Thinking of like, I don't know, with the larger news like these days, uh, and I even just here at Concordia, like uh, the creative writing profs, when I was doing my undergrad, uh, I was, we were very aware that there was a weird circumstance, and a lot of people said it's something I forget about. And then now it's come to light that at least one of the teachers' cases, like this was a repeating thing every cycle of undergrads, but nobody, everybody offered a sort of release of the grudge. And then every new group of students, he'd find a new sort of girl pray to um, so I'm having trouble with that's the, a that's a very interesting I don't mean to go on that no no but I think that's a really good and a very extreme example but not an extreme example because it's something unfortunately and sadly that's very real in the world today right. and something that I think that thank God has come out in the open and I hope that this is the first step in the world uh, collectively taking care of an issue that's been uh, haunting young women for many, many years. So it's a great example, an example of abuse. So what, what do you do? do? Do you deserve, does the abuser deserve to be forgiven? Well, I'm just going to use the narratives that we've spoken about so far. I can use a different narrative, but I'm going to try to stick with these three narratives for, for the time being. Let's use Walter Rathenau's mother's narrative. Can you forgive an abuser based on that narrative? But what are you saying to the abuser? I will forgive you on two conditions. You admit to what you're doing and you pay for it below and you pay for it above. So, and I think that in every single situation that we're talking about, we're not saying that just let it go. We're not saying he did something good. 
Joseph didn't even say we did something good. He said, you have to deal with it, but it's not my business. But I don't, she, yeah. She made him own up to it. Like, instead of her carrying, I mean, I'm sure she still carried it with her, her life, but she came away from it knowing that he owned it, and it was part of his life, and not that, you know, and, and I think your example's interesting, because I think for years the people were absolved, mm-hmm. and now they are have to own up to it, because it's being put back on them. Um, so, you know, so I think she, and it was, it, the positive outcome was incredible, um, she made it his grudge. And I think that is the power. The power is exactly what you're saying. She made it his grudge. Instead of him feeling like, I am okay. scot-free, I'm okay. I did something that maybe someone would agree with. Yeah. yeah. But isn't a grudge related to the fact that somebody did something and they got away scot-free for doing it? And they haven't had to pay for whatever they did. So people hold a grudge because, you know, that person's getting away with murder, murder <laughs> or anything else that is eating at them. You know, so people sort of want, I guess, closure or that, that the person, you know, one admits to redeems himself by doing something, whether it's imprisonment in some cases, or community service, or, you know. what, 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 you're, what you're saying is something that's very interesting. So what I did here tonight, because I wanted to make this practical for you, is what I did here is I took four real emails that I got. And from these four emails, I got, I gave four real answers. And what I thought we would do is we would go over some of this. So I'm just going to go through the, 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 the three basic questions. Email one, just so you have an idea, is must I forgive everyone? Which is basically, I'm using your, your segue into that. Email number two is how does forgiveness work? Email number three is how do I know that I'm forgiven? And email number four is forgiveness forever. So what I thought we'd do for the second half of tonight's talk is we go through the, the questions, we analyze them, and then we hear what I responded. These are actual, real responses that I gave to the people who asked the questions. So here's the first question. How can you forgive someone that really hurt you, especially if it's someone close and the trust between you has been shattered? What would you answer to that person? Before you go on to my answer. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Before, before you go on to my answer, just I want you to think for yourself. What is the, if someone asked you that question and you were in a position where you had to give them a response, what would you respond to them? But you have to want to forgive them and that you need to give things time. You have to want to forgive them and you have to give things time. I think it's amazing. Yes. So, so, 
So you're wanting the person to come to you and say, here's the $10 back, so to speak. You want the person to make the first, to own up to what they did. Right, exactly. I, I always, it always bothers me this time of year when you see people on social media just saying, anyone who I possibly yeah. didn't make any own mistake, I forgive you, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, and will you please forgive me? Really? That's the way? No. If you want, you can go personally. Then you have somebody like me who goes around and I'm saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then someone will say to me, it's about time, Rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> what did I do now? <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, what are you saying? Sort of agree with what she said, but um, I'd say you know you could, you could easily forgive, but you definitely it's not easy to forget. So you're saying it's easy to forgive, but not easy to forget. Yeah. I would say not even easy to forgive. So not easy to forgive and not easy to forget. Period. Is there a similarity between a grudge and resentment? Uh, I would say, in the context of our discussion tonight, it's probably the same. Different versions of the same thing. Yeah. I guess I would want to see the person make some steps towards restoring the shadow trust. Yeah. So, again, similar to what Alana is saying, you want to, you want someone to make that first step. Like, if if you if you really want me to forgive you, I want to see that you've changed. Okay, let's take a look at my answer, and then we'll discuss my answer. Forgiveness is not a single action that you begin and complete in a short time. Forgiveness is a multi-layered process and a long journey where we slowly progress and move towards the goal. In an essay on the topic, the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains that there are three levels of forgiveness. Number one, we don't wish the person any harm. And we even pray for their well-being. At this basic level of forgiveness, we might still be upset. We might still feel hurt or even angry. Yet we find it within ourselves not to hope for the person's downfall and not feel the need for revenge. So we're not even talking to them yet. We haven't even approached them. We're just creating our own, we are just talking about our own narrative, our own story. We don't want to wish them harm. We didn't forgive them, necessarily in the way that we think of forgiveness. We're just now in the first step of what the Rebbe calls the forgiveness process. Number two, the second step, we stop being angry. At this stage, We might not be ready to relate to the person as we did before, but we are able to move on and let go to the point that we're no longer carrying feelings of anger or resentment at any level. Which means, once again, we haven't even spoken to the person yet. We haven't even, this is all between us and ourselves and our own narrative, which I think is fascinating. We're now at level two of what the Rebbe describes as the forgiveness process, and we haven't even made a move towards the other person who we're forgiving. It's all still within ourselves. Number three is that move, is restoring the relationship. At this final stage, the forgiveness is complete. Not only have we forgiven the individual, but we have totally understood 
and we accepted him or her, and we're now ready to be as close to the offending person as before. So number one, we don't wish them any harm. Number two, we get rid of the anger or resentment. And number three, we restore the relationship. Now, it could be that we never get to number two or we never get to number three. Is number one just good enough? Is number one and two just good enough? I say yes. As long as this is a process, and it could be that as long as, long as we're in this process, it could be something that's so deep and so real, or it could be something you're living with for so many years that you can't just go through this process instantly. It may take as many years as you're living with it to get over what's happened. Yeah. That, maybe it's not worth restoring relationship. I think it's a good point. That it could be. So, and that's why I, I think it's a very good point. It may not even be worth restoring the relationship. So that's why I think that if you get to just one and two, it could be that that's good enough, according to the, to the Torah's understanding of forgiveness. Yes? I agree, because to me, sometimes it's forgive and forget. But in some cases, it's forget them. Right. You know, it's like, okay. I forgive you, I forget you now, I've cleared my head of you, you know, I'm, I'm moving on. And, uh... and, and honestly, a lot of it lives in your head anyway, or not your, but whoever's head. So it makes sense that it may have nothing to do with the other person, and it may never even get to the level of restoring the relationship, and that may be completely okay, because the point is the resentment or the grudge is living in your head. So you need to have that conversation with yourself and try to figure out where to go from there. Yeah. Sometimes people um, can be very toxic, you know, and it isn't kind of a one-shot deal. It isn't one action like somebody could be $10. Exactly. Yeah, just to repeat to what you said, if I understood you correctly, so that, that everybody, in case they didn't hear you on this side of the room, is that, you know, sometimes a toxic person can be someone that you don't want to reestablish a relationship with. It's not healthy. Or it could be that a lot of people are constantly harboring resentment, but they don't have the heart to let the relationship go. So the, the relationship... And the abuse is constantly living over and over and over again. It could be an enmeshed relationship or an infatuation of some sort that can create that ongoing process that ends up being... So it could be that just getting rid of that toxic relationship could really help the first... That could even be the pre-step to these three steps. But I think that we all pretty much agree the third step may never happen. And that's still okay. If, one, if step one or step one and two just happen, that's still okay. The Talmud explains that even if someone hurt us terribly, 
It's expected of us to find the strength to forgive them at least on the first level. Absence of any forgiveness whatsoever is a sign of cruelty. This is Talmudic. Wishing badly on someone and the desire for revenge represents a weakness of personality that requires rectification. Then it looks bad on us. If I don't even have the heart to try to figure out a way that I just don't want to wish them harm, I'm not necessarily even forgiving them. I'm not even getting to the issue that happened. I just don't want any harm to befall on them. One of the great examples that Talmud gives is the story about the great Rabbi Meir. There's not many women in the Talmud, because in that era, it was not a time where we wouldn't know the names of women. But we know the name of Rabbi Meir's wife. Her name was Bruria. And if we know her name, she was quite the woman. So one, the Talmud tells the story that one day, Rabbi Meir's wife overheard him praying. And he was praying for the neighbors to die. They had wronged him, and he wanted them to die. This is the story of the Talmud. This is the story of the Talmud is telling. They harmed him, and, they, and he wanted them to die. His wife, Bruria, admonishes him and says, My husband, Mayor, why are you praying for their end? Pray for the end of their sin. Maybe, just maybe, the first step or step half before step one is separating the person from the deed. I believe, and it's hard to say this, especially if someone has been abused and if someone's really been wronged, but I believe that deep inside our essence, in the essence of every person, there is a soul. And that soul started off good. Now it could be through whatever situation that has happened over our lives that something happens and as a result that soul is tarnished or ends up doing things that are not good, but really in its essence, that soul is good. So maybe in the words of Bruria, that amazing woman in the Talmudic era, we have to separate the person from the deed and pray for the end of the deed and not for the end of the person. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, in that explanation of Talmud, going back to the Walter, whatever, the yeah. Internet, you know, if you use that extreme example, she was a miraculous lady forgiving under the two conditions, but had she not, and she would have held that grudge, I don't agree with this definition applying to her, like the way you just described it, like uh, it's a sign of cruelty, like I, I, I wouldn't see it as a sign of cruelty if she didn't forgive, and it wouldn't reflect that on her character. Well, I mean, she made the good, the right choice, sort of. But I, I, think it's a, I think it's a really interesting question you're saying. So, we're not saying that she doesn't have the right to hold the grudge, being a grieving mother. Nobody is taking away her rights. But if she was looking beyond that right into her responsibility, because the Torah is more interested in responsibilities than it is in rights, the Torah is, actually doesn't, never speaks about rights. There's no rights in the Torah, just responsibilities. Just imagine that for a moment if we replaced rights with responsibilities. So the question is not necessarily if we think that she's cruel. 
as a grieving mother, beyond her grief, and we're never, ever going to take away the emotional process of a grieving mother. And that mother will grieve for the rest of her life. And that is a very painful, very terrible thing. Nobody should ever know of losing a child. It is the most painful thing that anybody could experience. But beyond that, if we can just put that aside for the moment and separate the grieving mother from the action, what is her responsibility? Is it going to be to hold it inside and let it burn her inside? She's not only being cruel to the other, she's being cruel to herself. She has to feel a way to express it. That What she did was a very powerful action. She was able to separate her grieving. I mean, it was right in the beginning of the story. That's what's so amazing about the narrative. Is she was able to separate her grieving from her responsibility towards her son's murderer. And maybe, just maybe, that's why it resonates so deeply with us. I don't think it's someone that, something that anyone or everyone can do, but it's definitely an amazing level. And the opposite of that could be possibly seen as cruelty. Maybe even if it's just cruelty to herself. Maybe. Now, a more difficult stage of forgiveness is the second stage, where we cease to feel hurt or anger. If we have been hurt or betrayed, we might need time and hard work to rid ourselves of negative feelings. It could be a long process of healing and soul-searching until the feelings of resentment actually disappear from our hearts and our soul. The ideal form of forgiveness is the third level, the most difficult of all the levels, the one which we all agree we may never get to, and that's to restore the relationship. However, it must be pointed out that this is not always possible. Some relationships are so toxic that the responsible thing to do is to walk away from them. But we don't need to take an all-or-nothing approach. If restoring the relationship is impossible, it is not always necessary to terminate all contact or become antagonistic. We can still achieve a more basic level of forgiveness by just wishing them well. We can still cease being angry and give them basic respect. We can still greet them when we see them and give them the dignity that every human being deserves. Every small improvement in our relationship is significant and has a profound effect and generates happiness. Take the first step now. Any thoughts, last thoughts on that answer? Or you want to move on? We're good to move on? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people light themselves on fire and expect their friend to die of smoke inhalation. A lot of people think that the way that you, the way that you get over resentment is by holding it inside. 
But I, I think that the Joseph way is the best way. If you give it up, then the onus has to fall on somebody. It's not like nothing happened. And if the person is a thinking and, and a person who's ever going to have any iota of thought or process amongst themselves, then it's going to affect them somehow. If you hold it inside, you don't give them any space to ever make good on what happened. If you're constantly harboring that, if you're constantly lighting yourself on fire, then you're never going to allow them, if they're constantly living rent-free in your head, then you're never going to allow them to own up to what happened. So we almost do ourselves for sure, and I would say even them, or what we want, what she wants the person to do is learn from it. And she's doing a disservice to that person by holding it inside. Especially in our society, we like to hold on. We like our security blankets. We like to hold on to that because we feel like it's all we have. Walter Rathenau's mother, that's all she had. Is there any record of comment from Walter Rathenau's mother? Yes. Yeah. Well, the way we know the story is Ernst Teckel wrote a book and he told the whole story in the book. That's how we know the story. What's the book called, yeah? I don't remember it, but I have it. So, I I mean, I read it in that book, so um, I definitely will find it. Don't forget to email (laughs) it. Let's go on to, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, we could go on. Yeah, no, please. It's just a question of who holds power. That's a great way of putting it. It's a question of who holds the power. And it's interesting because I personally think, and maybe you'll agree with me, that by giving up the power here, you're the one who ends up holding the power. And it's unique in this, it's unique to this situation, because in most situations, that's not the way it works. But here, by literally giving up, you're giving it back to the universe, and as a result, you hold the, the, the cards. But you have to be able to give it up, and that's really hard, because it's the one thing that I think that people like to use as security or hoard within themselves because it makes it comfortable. But it slowly eats away at us. Let's go on to the next email. Here's the question. Lately, I have been having a lot of confusion trying to figure out if and how God can forgive people for their sins. Suppose someone sins by killing another person or setting someone's house on fire and then that person genuinely repents and desires to do all that he or she can to repair the damage. Suppose God and also the victims of the sin forgive the sinner, but the person who has, was killed is still dead and the house that was burnt down still needs to be built. How can the person be forgiven if the effects of his or her crime 
still exist? What would you answer? <laughs> you're just saying that's true, you're screwed. Finish. The heck with all this. <laughs> there will always be effects of the crap that you produce. Yeah. Like, always. There will always be effects. Absolutely. I think abuse is a great example. The abuse is never going to go away, even if the person rectifies it or makes good. The, the abuse still existed and will exist. Germany's been paying retribution, but... Six million lives, six million Jewish lives plus six million non-Jewish lives yeah. are still taken. Seventy plus years, they're still paying back for it, and they're going to be paying back for it for many generations. I hope. My dad will never. Even though Israel's doing a lot of business with Germany today, for whatever reason, him and some of his friends will never buy a German car. I understand they that. Have that image of Hitler. Of course. And tank and they just... My my family would never buy a Ford. Because of, because of what Ford did during the war. And then you go to Israel and they're all driving Mercedes. I know, they're all lying. Exactly. It, it doesn't make any sense. You know what's, what's most interesting is that I will never buy a Hugo Boss suit. That's interesting. Because Hugo Boss is the official suit maker of the SS. And so I watch Jewish men wearing Hugo Boss suits and I'm going... I never knew that. I never knew that. I never knew that. Hugo Boss was a Nazi. Wow. And so it's like he sounds like a Nazi. Wow. I never. I never knew that. It's amazing. So I mean, and there's so many, so many other examples. I think of of the repercussions of the of the war and the Holocaust on the Jewish community. I never went to summer camp as a child because my grandfather said no grandchild of mine will ever go to a camp. What? You're sending the kids to camp? No! That was it. (laughs) I mean, they could have called it something else. They could have called it the go-away place and he would have been okay, but it was... But that was... I mean, there's so many examples. Exactly. So there's so many, you know, and that's why for, for many of us, they don't call us the children of survivors or the grandchildren of survivors. They call us second and third and now fourth generation survivors because we still and will for many generations, I think, live with the aftermaths of all of that. Let's go on to the answer. Here's my answer. Much of your quandary arises from confusing two related issues, forgiveness and healing. If one of my daughters spill red paint from her project all over the living room carpet and then come crying to me saying, Daddy, I made a big mistake. I feel so bad. I'd probably forgive her pretty fast, but I would still ask her to clean up the paint. Which means, I, held, I haven't held out on forgiving her until she cleaned up the mess. I've forgiven her entirely. It's just that it's her mess, and she has to clean it up. So, whenever a person messes up in this world, it causes damage to the world, to the soul, 
and to the body. A Jew may spend the first 50 years of her life eating non-kosher food so that every cell of her body is made of a substance that imprisons the Jewish soul. In one moment, she may regret and ask forgiveness, and she'll be completely forgiven. But now she must be careful to keep those kosher laws so that all those cells be changed over to kosher ones. We call this tikkun, which means repair. A type of healing of the soul, the body, and the world. Not always can it be achieved in a single lifetime. We may have to return again and again until the tikkun, the repair, is achieved. A tzaddik, a righteous person, can often assist a person to find their proper tikkun, their proper repair, for specific sins. But as I said, the first step is to feel true regret and determine to abandon the sin altogether. That alone is enough to procure forgiveness. Bit of a difficult one there. So I think that we have to separate the two, the forgiveness and the healing. The, the, the forgiveness for spilling the paint, so to speak, but then the cleaning up of the paint. They're two separate elements, and often we lump them all together because it becomes something that's emotional and not something that we can look at on an intellectual level, like we are right now. Yeah? In terms of repairing, you can repair a burnt animals. Yes. It's only brick and mortar and whatever. But you can't repair a dead person. So, you know, it's... It's very hard. You know, it's, to me, there's, like, it's a spectrum of repair. So, you know, paint out of a carpet, doable. I think if, if you asked um, a psychologist, maybe they, they give you a, a, an answer in psychology. Since I'm a rabbi, I'm going to give you an answer in the Torah. The Torah talks about someone who inadvertently killed someone else. What they have to do is they have to run away. They have to leave everything they own and they have to run to what's called an Are Miklat, a city of refuge, and live there their, their entire life. They did it by mistake. It could be that it was by mistake. I have a friend, childhood friend, unfortunately, who one five o'clock in the morning did not see a man walking, walked right in front of his car, hit him and killed him. He couldn't live with it. He lived with it for five years and then committed suicide. He couldn't live with it. And I think what the Torah is doing there, after my friend committed suicide, I realized that that is a very powerful thing because that person, if they have, like most of us, if they're living, breathing, and feeling, they are going to feel that remorse for the rest of their life. So it makes sense for the person to run away to the city of refuge and have to live in exile for the rest of their life because they're anyway going to be living in exile inside for the rest of their life. And perhaps it won't cause them to end up committing suicide. So, yes, you're right. And, and, and my friend did not mean to do it. He did not mean to do it. it. It was a mistake, but he could not live with himself.
I, I, I remember I was watching uh, an NBC report right after Bernie Madoff did what he did. And they were interviewing people who lost their life savings with Bernie Madoff. And they were interviewing an old Jewish man. He probably, I don't know, he looked like he probably in his 90s. I mean, well, well into his life. And the interviewer says, Bernie Madoff is sitting in his penthouse apartment in Manhattan watching this interview right now. Do you have anything to say to him? And this 90-plus-year-old man turns to the camera and he says, There's many words in Yiddish that can be translated. That one would take a lifetime and perhaps an entire encyclopedia to translate. But you can imagine what he's talking about. I, I would say a good word for that would be disgust. But more than disgust. It's, disgust, it's like, like shame, on you. shame on you, disgusting, beneath you, yeah. how could you, who are you, yeah. what the flippin' heck are you? But what that was, I believe was a call to action for a man like Bernie Madoff. Now, he can take that call to action, or he can't. I don't know what's happening. I know that as a result, he has a son that committed suicide. He has a messed up, completely messed up life. He's definitely sitting in what the Torah would call as the city of refuge, plus, 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 in his mind, in his heart, mentally, physically, emotionally. I don't know what. He's going to be sitting and rotting for the rest of his life. So... I don't, have, I don't have an answer for these very, very difficult questions, but I do think that it, it is true that there are people who don't have remorse. I don't see Harvey Weinstein having remorse, and there's no way we can give remorse. Perhaps we need to go on television and turn to Harvey Weinstein and say, feh, and maybe it'll inspire something in him. I don't know. So it, it's interesting because, you see, I don't even think that Bernie Madoff and those type of people are suffering from it. He's going... God, I had a good run. I enjoyed it. And now, you know, to me, it's like these people I don't have remorse. Because if he could do what he did, it's a person, to me, that doesn't have remorse, that doesn't have this... It's not eating inside him. He, he's pissed off that he got caught, that it's over. But he's not... Yeah, we are we, we are speculating on a particular narrative yeah. of a particular person's life, but I'm since we're spec since we're speculating, and I'm starting to go through um, the the Torah's responses. What I will say is that the Torah says that charity talks about charity. That if someone who is very wealthy somehow comes across a particular situation and loses everything, that while a person who was uh, um, a pauper and lost everything. It's your, the community's responsibility to restore them to having basic amenities of shelter and food, etc. To a wealthy person, it's the community's responsibility to give them to what they had. Now, it doesn't make any sense. Why are you going after the community to give them wealth? Because the Torah says they will never, ever be satisfied. They will never feel like a human being until they have are restored to what they have. Based on that, I'm going to say 
guy rotting in prison, he's not saying I had a good run with it. That's my humble opinion. He's, I think he's rotting away in having a, I hope he's having a tremendous amount of remorse. I, I have met, I haven't met people to that extent, but I have met people through my, the year that I worked for the federal government and went around as a prison chaplain. I served as a prison chaplain for a year. And I can tell you, I met people in, interesting people that were on top of the world. And prison is an interesting place. When those bars go up and you're there, whether it's for a day or for a week or for a year, it has a funny thing. It really messes with your head. And it causes you to, to talk and think. And you end up having internal conversations that you've never had before. There's a lot of nights of lockdowns where they turn off all the lights and all, it's, all it is is you and your thoughts. So, again, here we are speculating on a narrative, but I'll, I'm just continuing to, to go with your, uh, with your speculation. Let's go to question number three. How do I know that I'm forgiven? And this is a question I get a lot. The Torah teaches about forgiveness of God. But I don't feel forgiven, and I certainly can't forgive myself. How do I get victory once and for all from this evil inclination? How do I know that God has forgiven me? How do I forgive myself? I get depressed and don't desire to pray, to learn, or do anything because I am so ashamed and concerned that I am not worthy to stand before God. I would appreciate any help that you can offer. I get this question in different forms and lately quite a bit about people who can't forgive themselves. And that's an interesting narrative that I've had a very difficult time answering. What would you answer to this person before we go on to my answer? Someone who can't forgive themselves. You have tough questions, huh? There's a lot of people who are hard of they're hard on themselves. People well, who sometimes for good reason. Let's say question three was let's just use an example. Let's say it was a, a spouse cheating on the other spouse. You know they really should. You know. Yeah. yeah no, I I mean and going back to the going back to the Bernie Madoff or the Harvey Weinstein, I think that they should be hard on themselves. But aside of those extreme examples, let's go back to our world. And, and to us, I think there's a lot of people that you'll call the average. I don't know what average means, but you know, well, us. That a lot of us have become really hard on ourselves. Yeah. I guess the first question is, you ask yourself, why can't you forgive yourself? And two, have you changed the behavior that you're trying to be given for, forgiven for? Because if that hasn't changed, then why are you asking for forgiveness? Because you're going to have to keep asking for forgiveness because you're not changing what you're being... So, so if you're being hard on yourself, what are you, where is that hardness 
so to speak, going? Is it going towards your personal narratives where you're just saying, oh, I'm a nothing, I'm a nobody, I'm depressed, I hate myself, 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 myself. Or is it going to, who am I? What am I doing? And that self-reflection. I was just thinking that there's a, in psychology, there's, an, there's a term I often hear uh, that, that hurt people hurt people. There's another good expression in psychology, which is you can love someone but not agree with their behavior. Yeah. You can love someone but not agree with their behavior. That's great. And I think that perhaps the answer in what you're saying is that where is that energy going? Is it going to, as in Kabbalah, it says that depression comes from people thinking too much about themselves in the wrong way. Are we thinking too much about ourselves in the wrong way? Or are we thinking, yes, perhaps I did something wrong. Now what, how can I forgive myself? How can I rectify that? How can I change that? I think that's a really, really important element that needs to be differentiated. Well, let's take a look at the answer. Eve got in trouble because she answered back to a snake. She should have ignored him as though he didn't exist. Instead, she gave him the acknowledgement that he demanded. And then, some more. And eventually, well, you know what happens. After Eve, her children continued falling into the same trap again and again, exactly the same way. By providing undeserved credence to an otherwise impotent reptilian urge. After a while, someone figured it out. He said, hey, if I just ignore this dumb snake, maybe he'll go away. And so he tried it. And at first, the snake got louder and ruder and more chutzpahdik. Do I have to translate that Yiddish? No, that one I <laughs> But he kept ignoring the snake and eventually became a pure an enlightened master. Other people started learning from him. And pretty soon, there were more such pure souls. So the snake got desperate and tried more conniving, sly, and sneaky, attention-getting tricks. People figured out those as well. But eventually, the snake came up with a new trick. He dressed up in a costume as a very pious and holy being, just like the kind of person these people wanted to be, and that worked. He was able to bring down thousands of righteous people within days. The costume works so well, he even chose a name for it, and he uses it to this day. He calls it guilt. Now you know the truth. Guilt is nothing more than the poison of a snake. And the same strategy that works with the snake works with guilt. Ignore it. Get on with life. Do, ger- do good and turn from evil. Feel remorse. Shed some tears. Resolve not to fall in the same trap next time. And then get back on the road and keep moving. And if you've done that, God has forgiven you. So why shouldn't you forgive you?
And if you come across a snake along the road that picks up its head and calls you a sinner, ignore it. Eve already made that mistake. We must have learned something by now. As kids, some people got Hanukkah guilt, and some people got Hanukkah guilt. <laughs> and for in other communities, perhaps a chain. These are all. I think guilt has. So wrapped in this great lecture of all the theories, which I like, what about some tools? So, so, so everything's a theory, but then how do we put it in practice? So I think that what we've done here tonight is we've created a lot of narrative. And those narratives, I'm hoping that you can take and apply. We, um, we use a lot of different examples. We have three, I think, very interesting dynamics in the three stories. And then we have, let's say, three interesting dynamics in the three answers that we just gave in the, in, in the three questions. So my hope is that, actually, I'd like to turn it back on you and ask that question. And I'll prompt you by saying, I now know that. I now know what? I now know that. Don't hold a grudge. I now know that. It's only hurting me. It's only hurting me. I love that. It's great. It's all inside your head. It's all inside your head. It's a process. It's a process. I now know that it takes tremendous energy. Negative energy. It takes a tremendous negative energy to hold a grudge. Amazing. Is there something that resonated with you? Something practical that you can take home as a nugget that you can put into your toolbox? That, that, I came for that story. <laughs> you came for that story. The story of Walter Rathenau's mom. So just quickly, my situation is I brought my parents as I'm visiting from out of town. They have a, we have my sister who's unfortunately moved into the home nine years ago and constantly drains and hurts them and it's very hard for me to forgive the pain she's causing them. They're coming from a parent's perspective and find it still very challenging. I'm coming from a sibling perspective. So if I can, uh, number one of the three you gave before, I'm pretty good at forgiving them, not wishing them bad. Number two and three, I definitely could use some work on. So let's, so let's, so, so let's take this, if I could, since you brought it up to us in the forum here, let's take that as an example. So you um, are having a difficult time forgiving, which means that you feel like there's someone that's done something wrong, perhaps, while well, your parents don't feel the same way because of their perspective. So let, let's just play this out for a second. What if you took on their perspective for a minute and asked yourself, well, why do they think it's okay? Well, you don't think it's okay. So you, you just decided that it's wrong because that is your narrative, but perhaps your story is not the only story, and it may not even be the correct story. It's obviously your correct story, but it's your story. And it's in your head. But it may, may not be true. It's your truth. But there's a big difference between your truth and the truth. We often confuse 
our own truths with the actual truth. So you may have a hard time getting on to the next stage, and this is a great example, a great practical example, thank you for sharing it, because perhaps there is no next stage. Perhaps the next stage is you going into the minds of the person, where they say like, never judge a person until you walk a mile in their shoes, because you have their shoe, because that way you have their shoes and you're a mile away. Maybe you need to have their shoes and be a mile away. Maybe you have to walk that walk and try to figure out for yourself, well, here I am from afar, I'm in a different city and I'm seeing something that looks to me like it's not right, but maybe it's okay. Maybe it's not okay. Maybe it's not okay. But there's always another narrative. So I would say that in this situation, the first thing you want to do is try to find the other narrative. Because eventually, you'll be able to find the forgiveness by seeing someone else's perspective. If you come to this side of the table, it's always clearer. If you go to the other person's way of thinking, then it obviously is going to become clearer. And it's a, very, it's a challenge for us because we get stuck in our own box of the story that we tell ourselves is true or not true. And it could be that you're right. It could be that you have a, a good reason to hold a grudge against the person you're holding a grudge against. It's true. And then you have to go through a different process, the process that we've been speaking about all night. But what if what I'm asking you to do is, is part of the reflective process to think about the other person's perspective? It could be that it's too close to home and you need to find a third party who can help you think that through. And it could be that you're able to take on the other person's perspective, even for five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes and see what's really going on, what's really happening. And then you go back and ask yourself, well, why am I so upset? It's always amazing. And if, you're, if you ever do conflict resolution, I, I spend a lot of time with couples and I do a lot of couples therapy and counseling. And it's amazing to me where you can have a couple that comes, this is a couple, they, they spend a lot of time sharing the same space together. And they can come and have a tremendous, tremendous conflict. And the old rabbi story is, you know, the guy says, and the rabbi says, you're right. And the woman says, and says, you're right. And the guy says, how can we both be right? And he says, you're also right. <laughs> it's, it's really easy when you're on your, this side of the table to say, my way is the only way. But it's interesting, when you're in the middle and you have to be resolving the conflict, you see, well, yeah, it could be they're both right, but if they're both right, there's never, we're not going to get anywhere. You can't control. Exactly. There's nothing you can do about it. So you can be right or you can be happy. You can be right or you can be content. You can be right or perhaps you can take that right and you can put it in a bag and you can... Take a nice cloth bag and you can tie the rope around it and put it over your shoulder and keep it there as your experience. But don't keep it on your forehead. Just don't keep that right on your forehead. It does get heavy on your back, but it'll get much heavier if you keep it on your forehead. It's baggage, For sure. I mean, the best is to get rid of the bag. Burn it, to burn it in the bonfire. That would be much better. But if you can't, what I would say the first step is just looking at the other person's narrative and seeing if you can step into their shoes and say, well, what's really going on here? And it's hard. 
while you're in the middle of it, while you're in the crux of it. Any other, anything else that pops out from tonight's talk that is a nugget that you're taking home with you? Yeah. I would, first of all, really, by both dynamics, that's uh, very sad and yeah. very um, difficult in the family. And I would expect that that would be, a, that makes sense, right? A direct result and that bereavement process. Yeah. I mean, at least they're not in the denial stage. Right. Right? So they're, they're, they're the result, they're in the next stage, which is, you know, they're trying to find some yeah. kind of retribution of some sort by being strong in the safety. And that's great. They're channeling that anger and frustration towards something that's positive. for a moment. This is the way that they are dealing with a tremendous amount of grief that they deserve to have. And so by you taking the lift, it has nothing to do with the bus. It has to do with you giving them comfort that they need. And that's the way that they're responding to it. So you're, what ends up happening is, and this is a very common, it's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. What ends up happening is it becomes a story of semantics instead of trying to look at the person. And unfortunately, our world has become so issue-oriented. And this is a great example where people look at the issues instead of the individual. Look at the person. What's happening is they're going through a tremendous grief, and this is the way it's coming out. And this is the way they're able to, to experience and to have that kind of affection and that love towards you, which is beautiful. And by you giving them that joy, you're actually helping them heal. It's hard. Again, when you're, when you're in the crux of it and you're just like, just, let me, just, just leave me alone. But what you're doing is you're not giving them. You're, again, that, that, that example I gave before, you're, they're saying thank you and you're saying there's nothing to thank. You're not giving them that ability to heal and to be part of your, your life and your process. Any other nuggets that you're picking out tonight?
does. And I think it's a really, really beautiful thing. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to forgive and to forgive yourself. And one of the things that I love about the Jewish calendar is the Jewish calendar is set up throughout the year. Different months have different meanings. There's a month where we have to increase in joy. The month of Adar. There's a month where we have to increase in sadness. The month of Av. And there's a month that we talk about freedom. The month of Nisan. And there's a month that we spend on forgiveness. We're not a month, but there's 10 days that we spend on forgiveness. And this is it. Right now, we're in the middle of the 10 days that we spend on forgiveness. And it's our amazing opportunity between now and Yom Kippur. And when we turn to God, as the gates of heaven are open, on Tuesday night, Yom Kippur, Will we go there and we're going to say, God, will you forgive me? But if I didn't forgive myself, and if I didn't forgive others, how do I expect God to forgive me? And that's why this is so important for us now. Because we are in this time, and we're going to search for forgiveness. And so as part of this process, preparing for that awesome in the literal sense, that awesome moment where the gates of heaven are open, we have an incredible responsibility to ourselves and to others to be able to say, yes, I come before you, God, and I ask you for forgiveness, and I come before you, having forgiven everyone. And there's a beautiful prayer that's in the Siddur right before the Shema, that we go, before we go to sleep. And it's the prayer of forgiveness. And people who read this Shema every night before they go to sleep, they read this prayer of forgiveness where they will not go to sleep without saying, Master of the world, I hereby forgive everyone, anyone who harmed me in any way, I forgive them. And we do this every night. And it's perhaps a great opportunity for us to Think about that prayer. If you've never seen the prayer, I can show it to you in the Siddur. It's a beautiful prayer. I would say, in my humble opinion, maybe the most beautiful prayer in the whole book. A prayer that is not well known because it's not read in the synagogue. It's read at home before we go to sleep. And definitely this is a great time. And the fact that we're all here and we've made this time tonight to be able to talk about this and think about this and reflect on this is already the first step to possibly being able to enter that stage come Yom Kippur. And we can say, God, I've done my work. Now it's your turn. Am I instead of God? I've done my Now you can take care of the rest. And that's my thought for tonight.